Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As mentioned earlier, our lesson for today comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 39, the gospel reading. As it was mentioned earlier, the confirmation students helped with the planning of this service. They even chose the text we would use for the sermon and find themes in that and, that, and through that, then they began starting to pick hymns, and they worked on the liturgy, and I found the best way to teach them all about worship is for them to plan a worship service, and then they are here today helping to execute this worship service as well. And so when we started to look at this text, there was one thing that really kind of stuck out to the confirmation students, and it was this. They took special note of just how busy Jesus was. You see, Jesus, after leaving the synagogue, went directly to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. There she lay ill, and it says that she had a fever. Now, for us today, we don't, okay, she had a fever, big deal, right? Because we can deal with a fever. We can take a temperature with a thermometer, we can admit her Tylenol to bring it down, If it's an infection, we can give a course of antibiotics, and if they're getting dehydrated, we can always give them a bag of fluid through an IV. But they didn't have any of that back then. And so if you had a fever back then, that meant that you might not make it. And so by saying that she had a fever, it was shorthand for saying that she was very seriously ill. And so what follows, they tell Jesus immediately, and he goes and he takes her by the hand, And lifted her up. And she is healed so quickly that she can then begin to serve them at once, which would be her customary role. It was seen as a miracle. And then word got out that a miracle worker was amongst them. And so the whole city went to his door to get healed. Can you imagine being a doctor and having to heal an entire city's worth of people in one evening? Yeah, Jesus was busy. He had a long day. There were high expectations, and the amount of work for him to do was very likely staggering. And as we look at the lives of our young people, they are exceptionally busy. Way busier than I ever was at their age. I can remember having stuff to do and places to go, groups to participate in, but it wasn't very often, and it was very low pressure. I can remember being bored. I can remember having nothing to do. But after talking with these confirmation students, I'm thinking they have a much faster-paced life than previous generations did. Now, that's not to say that we all don't know what it's like to be busy. I'm sure we do. And we see there's a pressure to achieve. And we get this idea fed to us from a very early age. We're told if you work hard enough and you keep at it, eventually you'll succeed. And this has caused an entire generation of people to go to college so they can get nice paying jobs, so they can have a house and a family in the suburbs to achieve the American dream, never mind the mountain of debt that goes along with it. But this isn't just an American problem. 
Have you ever heard of a Japanese salaryman? He is the typical Japanese white-collar office worker. Considered by many to be the backbone of Japan's economy, these employees are expected to always put the company first. They work brutal hours, often 60 to 80 hours a week, and then evenings are followed by marathon drinking sessions with colleagues and clients, which is how many of them deal with the high pressures of these positions. They might, they might average five to six hours of, of sleep a night with the demands of roughly two full-time jobs and a family at home. And their lives can be so ragged that there are thousands of pictures that look like this. It's becoming commonplace that these salarymen simply just shut down in public and they fall asleep wherever they happen to be, on the street, on the sidewalk, in the subway. And it's not like they're homeless. These are well-paid, well-dressed, well-respected, hard-working individuals that simply take this concept of being busy to the extreme. Maybe you can identify with that a little bit. Maybe this is hitting home for you. Thankfully, we worship a God that can identify with this too. When Jesus was here on earth ministering in human flesh, I'm sure he got tired. He would need to sleep. He would need to sit and eat food. And my guess, my guess is that he got tired of ministering to people. Not in attitude. I didn't mean like he got sick of us, but that he would get physically wore out. And in our gospel lesson for today, if you look at the day that Jesus had, how he had an entire city full of people that wanted to be healed by him, I can imagine it was rather exhausting. And what's more, we see from Peter that Jesus still had more work to do because people are looking for him. They want in on this free health care that Jesus is dishing out. But let's turn and look at what Jesus then does. After a long day of ministering, of healing, of teaching, and after a little sleep, it says that Jesus wakes up early in the wee hours of the morning before the sun even had a chance to rise, and he left. And he went to a desolate place, and like it says in verse 35, there he prayed. He didn't sleep in like the confirmads mentioned wanting to do. He didn't go to some lush garden with a fancy fountain. He went to a desolate place, and he spent time in conversation with his Father in heaven. I want you to see that when Jesus was all tapped out, his solution, his revival, his restoration was prayer. So let me ask you, How's your prayer life going? How often do you spend time talking to your Father in heaven? When are the times you go to God in prayer? When is it you're not praying? It's funny, one of the reasons I found that people aren't spending time in prayer is that they think, I don't have time to pray, or I'm too busy to pray. Maybe that's you. At a time in my life, it certainly was me. And that's what made an excerpt from this book, Why Pray, written by Pastor John DeVries, so impactful. He's a, a pastor who sometimes goes out to guest preach 
and listen to the story he wrote about pushing a car that's out of gas. Go. There it is. Imagine that it's Sunday morning about 10 minutes before worship time at your church and that I'm going to be the preacher there. You notice me pushing a big old car down the road. It dawns on you that I am the guest preacher, and it's clear that I'm never going to arrive on time. I'm right in front of an open gas station, about five-minute drive from the church, and I'm passing the station. You slam on your brakes, hop out of the car, and ask me, what's the matter? Why are you pushing your car? I brush some perspiration off my forehead and reply, that my car happens to be out of gas. Why then are you pushing it past the gas station, you ask? Push it into the station and fill it up. But, I protest, I don't have time to stop for gas. I only have 10 minutes left to get to church. I can't be distracted by anything. I must be on my way. My reply is so foolish that it's hard to comprehend. No one in his right mind would be too busy to fill up if he were out of gas. No one would push his car past a gas station because he was in a hurry to get somewhere. Think of this illustration whenever you want a good example of a prayerless Christian. The vast majority of Christians in our society claim that they don't have time to pray. But that excuse is as senseless as my saying, I don't have time to stop and fill my gas tank. Prayer is the relationship in which we stop right where we are, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Without him, we can do nothing. Christians spend time in prayer. That's what fills our gas tanks when we are tapped out. It's what filled Jesus' gas tank when he was tapped out. To not spend time in prayer is as silly as pushing your out-of-gas car past the gas station. And of all the priorities in life that fight for our attention, one of them needs to be prayer. Just look at the example of Jesus and what he did. Now, there's a risk when you preach a sermon asking people to emulate Jesus, someone who is perfect. Jesus got it right, so just copy him, and you'll get it right. Jesus was perfect, so just, you know, go be like Jesus, who was perfect, right? The one exception to this is a t-shirt that I saw that says, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. I almost got this for Pastor Bob for Christmas. <laughs> but that's definitely something we can get behind, right? But the truth is, even when we try to emulate Jesus, we will always fall short. We can try, but we'll never do it perfectly. And thankfully, that's where forgiveness of sin comes in. We can try to be perfect, but when we fail, we can remain secure in the forgiveness of our sins, forgiveness freely given by what Jesus did for us on the cross. When Jesus came to this earth in the flesh, he wasn't just some miracle healer. And when that reputation might have started to take hold in our reading for today, instead we see Jesus, after spending time in prayer, tell people why it is that he actually came. In verse 38, Jesus says, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. 
Jesus came to proclaim, to preach, to share how God is saving his people. Saving that included his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Doing all that is necessary for us to inherit eternal life. Life that we know and that we have faith in because the word was preached to us. And in this reading, that's so focused on healing and on prayer, we see Jesus not only pray, but heal. And that healing extends to us today in this room. The healing that we receive, though, is a spiritual healing of our disease of sin. By his blood, we are healed. He casts out our demons as we are made perfect through his sacrifice. And it's because of that sacrifice that God is then able to hear our prayers. It's because we are connected to Jesus and his death and his resurrection that we're able to come to God in prayer, confident in the promise that he will hear us and he will answer us. Because God is faithful and he knows what we need even before we ask. And he's a God of love who knows what's best for us. I want to close with uh, one final observation. Interesting enough, though we have other accounts of Jesus praying, specifically in the book of Mark, we only see it three times. We see it here in the beginning of his ministry. We see it in the middle of his ministry when he, after he fed 5,000 people. And then we see it lastly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just hours before he was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to execution by crucifixion, we have Jesus spending time talking to his Father in heaven. And it was during this time in his life that he was the most distressed and the most troubled. The book of Mark records the, uh, the words of Jesus for us. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, even during Jesus' darkest hour, his prayer was still, thy will be done. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we go about our busy lives, let us be comforted and encouraged by God's word, by Jesus' example, and by our forgiven and redeemed identities as one for whom Jesus died. And let us follow his example now as we go to God in prayer. Please pray with me. Lord God, Heavenly Father, hear us as we pray. Lord, you know the challenges we will face, the stress upon our busy lives, as we are reminded over and over that we are not God and that we cannot do everything ourselves. Forgive us when we fail. Strengthen us when we try and continue to use us as your dear children. Use us to share your saving word with the world that needs to hear it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.